I was very happy to discover Meat for Tea's podcast. Elizabeth has a great voice that is extremely easy to listen to, and she and her partner Mark have done a wonderful job setting up a comfortable space for conversations with local and national talent. Listening to the Meat for Tea cast is always an enjoyable experience. The Meat for Tea cast is brought to you in part by Sone Lab, a recording studio in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Offering recording, mixing, and mastering of all styles of music, we even master podcasts. Email info at sonelab.com for more information. That's info at s-o-n-e-l-a-b dot com. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So this is the Meet for Tea cast. You might always start like that. Who knows? Welcome to season three, episode twelve of the Meat for Tea cast. My name is Sebastian Miller. I am joined by Elizabeth McDuffie and Mark Allen Miller. If you like this podcast, leave us a five star review with writing an Apple Podcast, and consider supporting us with a donation or by subscribing or purchasing merch. Hey, thanks, Sebastian. Thanks, Sebastian. So, piggybacking on what Sebastian was saying, if you want to support us with a donation, you can go to... You can go to meetfortea.com forward slash buy htm. Well, that's if you want to purchase. If you'd like to donate, you go to meetfortea.com forward slash donate <laughs> dot dot htm. htm. <laughs> of course. But you can support us by buying PDFs and issues of the magazine or subscribing or even getting... Um, some merch by clicking on the t-shirt icon on any of the pages on the website. So there's that. There are t-shirts, there are pint glasses, there are mugs, there are hoodies, there's socks, tote bags, all manner of coolness. And I have it on authority from one happy purchaser that our t-shirts are super soft. Yay! It's awesome. So it's good to know. So for this episode, we have... Michael Washburn. Special guest, Michael Washburn. He's been frequently published in Meat for Tea, and his days of publishing in this arts and literary journal date all the way back to volume six. Is it volume six? Wow, it's been that long. That's amazing. been with us a long time. He's a regular contributor, and he is largely going to be talking about his very cool collection of short stories when we're grown-ups. And if you like his description of the book, you can purchase it. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. You can get it from Amazon. Yeah, I think he maybe mentions one other place. You'll have to listen and find out. But it's really good. Great conversation. Talk about a lot of different things, including like his philosophy on... On writing. On writing. Yeah, it's great. And at the end of the episode, we will also have a song from... We have a special treat from Jane Carey, who has her poem, Better Days, transformed into song form. And it is delightful. So stick around till the very end for that treat. Oh, one other thing. We've got a Patreon page that's going to be happening pretty soon. Get excited. Uh, this Patreon episode, our very first one is me joined by my Saturday book club friend, Tara Orzalik, and we are talking about 
Yellow Jackets. If you don't know what Yellow Jackets is, it's a Showtime series. Some say the best Showtime series in six years, I think. The best original Showtime series in six years. One of the most successful. But it's also just fascinating. And we approach it the way we approach the books we talk about in book groups, if you want to hear it. That... You will like it. That'll be some of the first bonus or the first bonus content if you're a Patreon subscriber. Yeah. And um, speaking of book clubs, there's a podcast that discusses Yellow Jackets in depth from the lovely people at the We Made This platform. And it's called No Book Club. (laughs) So it's kind of a stunning twist of irony that our Yellow Jackets discussion is from book club. I love it. That's so great. Catch the buzz. So we've covered housekeeping. We've got Michael Washburn coming up. I think that kind of gets us going, doesn't it? Let's get into it. All right. Here's Elizabeth and Michael. Hello, Michael. Good evening, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm I'm well. I'm well. How are you? Doing fine. Am I coming through okay? Yes, you sound great. How about me? I can hear you perfectly. Good, good, good. So I'll officially welcome you. Um, I'm excited to welcome Michael Washburn onto the Meat for Tea cast, author of When We're Grownups, and an author who I've had the privilege of frequently publishing in Meat for Tea. And we've been publishing you for a long time. I just went and looked on the website. Looks like the first issue you appeared in was... Volume 9, Issue 3, the tripe issue. Mm -hmm. Am I correct? I think that's correct. I'm trying to remember which story that was. I think it may have been Whose Woods These Are, I Think I Know. That sounds right. I don't have a stack of every issue you were published in next to me to refer to you, I'm ashamed to say. I suppose (laughs) I could have done that. Well, that's a short story whose title comes from a very beloved Robert Frost poem. Oh, yes. And if I of course. remember correctly, that story came out in the fall issue in 2017. That makes sense. Volume 9, issue 3, the tripe issue. So you've been with Meat for Tea for a long time. I think it's a fine publication, and I'm always delighted when one of my submissions gets accepted because that means that I'm going to appear in this great literary journal and people are going to read my work and I might even have an opportunity to come up to East Hampton and read from my work, which I've done on a number of occasions. Yes. And that, that's always, I think, I think you came a number of occasions or just one, I think just, you came to one circ. Is that correct? No, it's definitely more than one. It's more than one. Two or three circs at this point, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. We have another one actually coming up March 12th, by the way. In person? In person. That is so exciting. I am so tired of Zoom events and virtual meetings, and I yearn for human contact and being able to read in a room full of people and see their reactions face-to-face. That is such a magical, exciting, entrancing experience. And I miss it so much. And I really want to recapture the magic. So I'm delighted to hear that you'll be doing in-person events again. Yeah, we actually started in September. Our, our first live Cirque post-pandemic was September. We had one in December and we're having another one 
this March mm-hmm. and we're having them not at Sone Lab, but right next door at the abandoned building brewery where, where we'd watch the films. Yes. And where they serve all those really exotic beers. Mm-hmm. Really lovely craft beers. Actually, speaking of abandoned building brewery in the episode just prior to this one, we have a, a lovely chat with the proprietor, founder of the brewery, um, Matt Tarlicky. It's a fun listen. He was actually um, a structural engineer before he went into becoming a craft brewer. So his journey is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can come March 12th at Abandoned Building Brewery. And we chose that space right next door to Sun Lab instead of just having it all at Sun Lab because he's expanded it. I think it's going to be, if you, if you make it, it's going to be a lot larger than what you recall. He's really grown the place out a bit. So there's a lot more space for people to be a little bit more safely distanced. That's good to hear. Yeah. We're trying to be respectful of the fact that we're still in the throes of the pandemic, although the numbers are coming down and they're looking better and better, especially in East Hampton. And he's got a super strict mask unless you're eating or drinking policy. And we have our own um, vaccination policy. All, All guests are to be fully vaccinated. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're conscientious. And I think these are sensible measures. I think that sometimes people go a little bit overboard with restrictions and requirements, but I I do see the wisdom of being prudent and taking sensible measures. Yeah, and, and a lot of it's also, I mean, I'm, I'm immune compromised, so I want to be cautious of my own health. And the other part of it is just liability reasons, and we care about keeping our friends that come to the event safe, so... All of the above. Well, none of that poses a problem for me coming up and taking part in the Cirque because I'm vaccinated and I have my card and I'm ready to go. I hope to see you then. It'll be great. And we'll have um, charcuterie from Corsella's Butcheria and my homemade bread and Matt's lovely beer in addition to everything else that will be exciting. Excellent bands, too as always. And I'm sure you'll do a very elaborate visual and audio production of the event and make it available on your website and maybe for downloading on some other channels. Well, when you, you saw some of the virtual circs then, did you get to catch any of those? We, during the pandemic, we did virtual circs in lieu of the live ones and they're just streaming on the Facebook page. So how is Brooklyn treating you these days, Michael? What's going on there? Well, I really enjoy living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I like this artistic bohemian community that I live in. Mm -hmm. It's very congenial and there are great restaurants and cafes and coffee shops and wine bars and galleries and bookstores. And it's also close to Manhattan. I take the L train. And we're just one stop over from First Avenue. It's one stop from Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg to First Avenue, and then Third Avenue, and then Union Square, Sixth Avenue, 
8th Avenue. And 14th Street is such a main artery, you have access to virtually any other route that you want to go. And you can get pretty much anywhere in Manhattan pretty quickly. So it's very convenient. I have to say that I feel kind of sorry for a number of people who were living here in Williamsburg. It was announced that service on the L train would be shut down because maintenance needed to be done on the L line. It was long overdue. There was so much work that had to be done. I know. And it required a total shutdown of the L. And so a lot of people who lived in the neighborhood and who had to have access to Manhattan, they said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And they panicked and they left their very desirable lofts in Williamsburg and they moved to other neighborhoods. They moved to Crown Heights. They moved to Fort Greene. They moved to Flatbush. They moved to Bay Ridge. They moved to Bed-Stuy. And then the city turned around and said, oh, no, we're not going to shut down the L after all. Oh, my gosh. Oh, (laughs) what a disruption. So that is kind of like an O'Henry Oh, that's rough. Or 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 a Maupassant story. It's it's a it's like a short story. It is that has a sting in its tail, where people get their comeuppance, and it's very very cruel and ironic. And I don't feel that the people who made such an investment to live here necessarily deserved it, but that's what they got, and that's what happens when you have this very kind of aloof, arbitrary municipal bureaucracy that's laying down the rules and not really caring when it runs roughshod over people's rights. And that's what happened to a lot of people who uh, really were happy to live in Williamsburg and then lost everything that they cherished. That is so rough. I actually love Williamsburg. I love Brooklyn. I have not been in far too many years, but boy, boy, do I love coming to visit. It has a lot in common with the area in which we live. I think they're both. In what sense? um, Just bohemian, artsy enclaves where you find lots of, lots of musicians, lots of, lots of fine dining, lots of art studios. I think if you, if you hung around East Hampton a lot, you'd, you'd, you'd feel it. It's got a similar vibe. Well, I have spent some time in East Hampton because I went out there, as we were talking about before, to participate in the Cirque. And I ended up in East Hampton in the early afternoon, so I had a lot of time to kill before the Cirque. Oh, nice. And so I checked in with my host, who's a friend of yours, and then I went out to explore the town a little bit. And I discovered there were a lot of cafes and diners and restaurants and coffee shops and galleries and bookstores. Yep. And I explored a fair amount. And you're quite right. It really does have a bohemian vibe. And it's an interesting interesting place to spend some time. And I only wish that I had a little bit more time. Yeah. You you stayed at um, Bohemian Suite, is that right? I think that you sounds said, about right. 
We stayed at my friend Molly's place, which I'm, I'm sad to announce she's not she's not doing that Airbnb anymore. There is no more Bohemian Suite. And I think that that's right. You have been to a few Cirques. And the time, or maybe the first time you came to a Cirque, I think I put you up at our place in East Hampton. No, 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 no. See, I think that was actually the second time. Oh, because okay. there was no availability at your friend's house. Sure, sure. Nice. Yeah, and embarrassingly, I remember we you accidentally you got stuck in our bathroom because our door swells up and gets very, very sticky. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm hosting this writer and he's he's got stuck in a room. This is mortifying, but it was it was rectified rapidly enough. <laughs> Not the end of the world. Well, maybe if you come out March 12th. No, we we won't be able to put you up, actually. That's right, because one of our bands, one of our bands is actually coming from Out Your Way, um, Heroes of Tulik, and we're, we're putting them up. So I've been wondering all this time, how did you come to find out about Meat for Tea? How did it come across your radar? Well, as I think you know, I am a very prolific writer of short stories. Oh, yes. And good ones, too. I love your writing. And good ones, too. <laughs> Critical distinction. <laughs> and I'm always writing and producing stories and searching for markets that might be receptive to my work. But I do have to say that the stories that I write are maybe not mainstream enough for some publications. And Harper's is not going to publish them. The New Yorker is not going to publish them. They aren't the kind of stories that you sit in your dentist's waiting room and read. <laughs> Thank they, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they're an acquired taste. And I think to appreciate them, you have to have a certain sensibility you have to appreciate a very literary style and also have a taste for stories that explore some of the darker passages of the human experience and uprootingness and alienation and isolation and social fragmentation and social breakdown. And these are some of the themes that I explore in my writing. Mm -hmm. And so I am ever on the lookout for a potential markets for my work. I've done a lot of research. I've gone online. I've looked up literary journals in the US, whether they have a million subscribers or a few thousand subscribers, whether they're published in print or online or some combination thereof, or quarterly or monthly or once every uh, five years. I mean, there are all kinds of publications out there. And I'm always interested in searching out editors who have taste and vision and who might be receptive to work that is considered to be outside the mainstream. And so when I found out that there was this literary journal, this quarterly journal in Western Mass called Meat for Tea that is open to unsolicited submissions, I said, well, what do I have to lose? I'll send a short story to this journal and if the editor likes it, great. And if she doesn't like it, life goes on. So what do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. And so I began submitting work. And to my delight, I found this receptiveness and interest on the other side. 
and it seemed that something in my work spoke to you. Uh, I don't know exactly. I can't read your mind. And we haven't had too many discussions about your editorial criteria and what you like and don't like and what you find to be of interest in my work. But I knew that I must be doing something right because I was submitting stories to Meet for Tea and they were getting accepted and getting published. And I was being invited to Cirque. And so, again, I thought, well, what do I have to lose? What do I have to gain if I send work here? I think I have nothing to lose and I have a lot to gain. <laughs> well, you, you got $4.50 to lose, but <laughs> that's it. And you, you wouldn't believe how many people... That's subway fare. <laughs> people balk about that. I, I've taken some real shit for that, but it, the the only reason I have the fee and I was reluctant to ever have one is because shipping the physical contributors copies is expensive, especially, you know, it's perfect bound. The average length now is about 135, 140 pages an issue. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'd just be taking a bath in postage costs. How do you do that? Do you go down to the post office with, with a huge stack of copies and send them out? <laughs> How do you handle the physical distribution of meat for tea. Well, th there was a day, there was a day when I did that. And, and then there was a day when I actually had somebody in the mid Midwest who would handle all of my shipping West of the Mississippi. But that ended because a big box of meat for tea, I was sending him got lost in the mail, never to be seen again. So that was hundreds of dollars gone. Um, no, uh, PayPal has themselves all set up. They've got this, they're hooked up with ShipStation. I can print the labels right here. They're they're kind of a little bit better than stamps.com. And then um, my husband can just bring them upstairs to the place where he moonlights when he's not recording and mastering music, Viva Tubes, where he tests vintage tubes for tube amps and they've got shipping up there and that's the fully indie DIY way this gets done. The, this thing is as punk rock and indie and DIY as you could ever imagine. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you have a cost-effective means to send the issue out to contributors and subscribers. Yeah, I mean it's still it costs it costs it costs what I charge for my submission fee. It, I just turn it around, put it into posting and that's all it is. So you brought up O. Henry and you brought up Dima Passant. And I, I feel there's, although they're, they're, they're a little bit darker and edgier than maybe where O. Henry and Dima Passant ventured, I feel your, your stories share a sensibility with them. Am I, am I on the right track there? I think so. I think they share a certain irony and a kind of morbid humor <laughs> and kind of recognition of the very frayed and ultimately doomed nature of the human condition. But there's not uh, total despair or resignation in the stories. There's this kind of sense that the world is what it is and we have to grapple with it and we have to show our character and we have to rise to challenges. And both of these writers, I think they're really wonderful authors who have this kind of broadness of 
taste. They write about so many different human situations and circumstances and scenarios, and they manifest this dark wit and humor. And Mm -hmm. if we can revert for just a moment from high culture to pop culture, there's a band that was very popular in the 1980s, this band Bauhaus, which was a surrealist band. Yes. Love them. Love them so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of their songs is called, you know what it's called? Small Talk Stinks. No, Small Talk Stinks. Oh my gosh. Stinks. So perfect. Isn't, isn't that a great title for a song? And I'm trying to remember the lyrics here, but some of the lyrics go, a sentence should, uh, ha- it should be like a scorpion. It should have a sting in its tail. Oh. And I think of those lyrics when I, I think about Maupassant or O. Henry or Saki or Agatha Christie. Yes. Or, or even Hemingway. There are certain writers who revel in irony and in twist endings and in endings that have a sting in their tail. And they deliver a certain unexpected thrill to the reader because the reader comes face to face with this irony and with what we call in writing workshops, the unexpected inevitable. So there's something brewing in the story and you get to the end of the story and you find the twist and you realize that maybe you should have seen this coming and it was the only possible outcome. But the author is so artful and clever. The author kept you guessing all the way through and you did not know how it was going to turn out. And then when you get to the twist ending, you realize there was no other possible outcome. And the story has a sting in its tail. And I think that is a perfect description, certainly of the work of O. Henry, who is a writer I've been reading a great deal of recently. Mm. And I love the fact that he brings together in his work all these different settings, the American West, the American South, New York City, New England, And there are certain common denominators, certain universalities of the human condition that emerge over and over again in his work. One of the stories that I read recently, it's called A Retrieved Reformation. And it's about this man who breaks into bank safes. And and then he tries to go straight and leave a good life and be an upstanding citizen. But he decides he's going to do one more job. And then in the bank where he goes with his fiance and her family and a bunch of other respectable citizens, he is planning to carry out this last job. They think that he's a great guy and an upstanding citizen in their community. And they're very excited about the fact that he, this very eligible bachelor is going to be marrying this respectable young woman. They're so excited. But then through a series of freak incidents, a little girl gets locked in the safe in the bank. The the door of the safe is open and someone pushes her inside as a prank and then the door closes and locks. And they realize that she's going to die if they can't find a way to get her out of there. Right. Because she's locked in a safe and there's a very limited amount of air inside the safe. And so 
what are they going to do to save this girl's life? And the anti-hero, the protagonist, he realizes that if he uses his specialized skills to open the door to the safe, they're all going to realize that he is not the upstanding citizen that they believe him to be. <laughs> right. And that he is the one responsible for a series of bank robberies that have taken place in recent months. But if he doesn't put his skills to use, then this girl is going to die. And so he's faced with this moral and ethical dilemma and this kind of existential crisis. And for those of you who have not read this story, I won't spoil the ending. But <laughs> the plot unfolds and there is a totally unexpected twist or to use the idiom that, that we've been, uh, we've adopted here. There's a sting in the tail of the story. So that's how a lot of great fiction works. There's a sting in the tail. There's the unexpected inevitable and it catches you totally off guard. And then you realize that maybe if you'd been a little more astute Maybe if you'd sounded out some of the psychological dimensions of what you read up to that point, you might have seen it coming. But part of the pleasure is in letting the author lull you and carry you along and then surprise you with the unexpected inevitable. I love that. I love that. I've been a, a fan of O. Henry since I was, oh gosh, an eighth grader. I think it's, it's been a long time. I remember. Do you I, remember the first O. Henry story that you read? I don't. I had a collection of O. Henry short stories. I mean, the, the one that sticks out in my memory is just the most obvious, most famous Christmas story, "Gift of the Magi." Mm -hmm. But um, I was I was miserable in um, junior high school. No, yeah, high school, freshman high school. So I was I was older than eighth grade. But anyway, I, I had an English class in which I was horrifically bored. Um, the teacher wasn't bad. I just think he had to keep things at like a level where even the, the dullest student could follow along. So um, while he was going over the stuff we we're supposed to be doing in class, I tucked my paperback collection of O. Henry short stories inside of my textbook. <laughs> and I was like reading along while, while class took place and he actually caught me and was like Elizabeth could you could you please put the O. Henry away and I caught um a glimmer of a smile on that English teacher's face and well it seems that you shared the same guilty pleasure yes <laughs> so you were saying you can't read my mind um as far as my editorial decisions but that that probably explains a lot I'm I'm fond of O. Henry I'm fond of de Maupassant also um Kate Chopin liked to have that sting in the tail, too. You remember a story of an hour? I don't remember that. I am a great fan of The Awakening. Oh, yeah. I can't say that, I, that I've read all of her stories, no. Story of an hour is amazing. A, a woman learns of her husband's death on a train God, should I do a spoiler? No one will understand why it's so ironic if I don't, but I don't think I should. Anyway, she, she learns of her husband's death on a train, and um, we, we see her whole internal dialogue, all of her thoughts, and she's thinking, free, free, free at last. She's, she's thrilled. 
And I guess, I guess, um, our, our readers, I like to call my podcast listeners, our readers. Cause I think, I think they experience this like reading, um, our readers will have to just go look at Kate Chopin story of an hour for themselves to see what the sting in the tail is. And I love that. I'm going to just keep using that Baja's turn of phrase forever, Michael. Thank you. That's useful. It is useful. Yeah, it's really good. Well, do you have a, a short piece of your own that you'd like to share with our Meat for Tea readers slash listeners that exemplifies this aesthetic? <laughs> well, I have a number of stories that I think make use of this device. Mm -hmm. And since you've run some ads for my short story collection, When We're Grownups, Oh, yes. Maybe. We're going to talk about that a bunch. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Uh, oh, of course. Maybe I could bring up the opening story of the collection. It's called The Night People. And it's about a young executive, a female executive of an energy company in D.C., taking the train down to meet up with her family in rural North Carolina. And something very unexpected happens. The train has some kind of difficulty. It may have broken down or someone may have sabotaged it, but the train has stopped. And in her efforts to reach out to people in the community via her cell phone and try to get some help, she gradually learns things and pieces together a very sinister backstory to what's going on and realizes that not everyone in the community wishes her well. Mm. And supposedly, all her career, her corporate practice has been about ethics and environmentalism and helping people and being a good, responsible citizen a citizen of her community and a citizen of the world, but there's a lot more going on. And we learn that at an earlier stage of her career, when she was the kind of mid-level executive at a company based in North Carolina, she had oversight of environmental responsibility and protecting the drinking water of local communities and something went terribly tragically wrong Ooh. and one of the requirements one of the pillars of being morally responsible and being a good citizen is owning your mistakes mm -hmm. and being very candid and transparent about what you may have done wrong and actions that you've taken, decisions that you've taken that may have had negative consequences for others. And the great writer and essayist Joan Didion, who just recently died. Oh, R.I.P. R.I.P. Power to her. I love her so much. R.I.P. We will never see her like again. Oh, my gosh. I still have my dog-eared copy of Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And I, mm -hmm. I, when, I, when I was an English professor, I taught several essays from that collection. I, I love her so much. And one of her essays, a very eloquent essay, is about self-respect. And she is very clear 
that self-respect does not mean having bravado and being a, a chauvinist for yourself and telling other people that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. No, on the contrary, self-respect means acknowledging your own agency in what you may have done in the past. Mm-hmm. And that often means owning your mistakes, right? So let's say I did something wrong and it had terrible consequences. Well, if I try to cast off blame or try to shift the blame to other people, that's not real self-respect. On the contrary, that is the opposite of self-respect. That means that whoever I was in the past did not have real agency and did not have responsibility. And if I deny myself those traits, I am denying any self-respect. So Joan Didion believed and argued very forcefully and persuasively in this essay that self-respect means owning your mistakes. And if you look at the world today, if you look at Alec Baldwin, some people do not want to own their mistakes. (laughs) And they say, no, it's not my fault. Well, maybe I was executive producer on a set where someone got killed, but it's not my fault. Right. Hard to know who else would be the master of all the moving pieces on that set, if not the executive producer. But no, it's very easy to say, well, it's not my fault because I didn't personally hire the person who allowed a loaded gun to be handed to so-and-so who passed it on to so-and-so. So don't blame me. It's not my fault. It's not my problem. But that is not self-respect. Maybe in in a very kind of superficial way, you think you're standing up for yourself, but you're really not. You're denying yourself agency, and you are not manifesting self-respect as Joan Didion understood the concept. And so this has been a a very long digression, but getting back to my short story, so this is a story about a young executive who is not willing to own the consequences of her mistakes and they come back to haunt her. And she, she has not shown integrity in trying to deny or shift the blame for what happened when she was the mid-level executive of that corporation in North Carolina that was complicit in a terrible environmental catastrophe that led to drinking water being contaminated and babies being born with genetic mutations. Mm. She wants to deny responsibility, but she is not manifesting self-respect. On the contrary. And when we finally get to the end of the story, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there is a sting in the tail in the sense that this executive proves to be the opposite of what she has always pretended to be. And she shows the opposite of moral courage, the opposite of responsibility, the opposite of self-respect. So there's the O. Henry twist. There's the sting in the tail. Mm-hmm. And there's what I think one of my rather typical short stories has in common with uh, a lot of my work. I love that. I like that you you look right into the roots of human behavior and the psychology and motivations. I also is is it I don't I don't think it's a, the correct use of the word irony, but it's it's interesting. Your example of 
Alec Baldwin, and I wholeheartedly agree as um, not not taking agency, who who most famously caricatured on Saturday Night Live um, our 45th president. A certain, a certain president, yes. <laughs> uh, right, who, who on, on this podcast is like Voldemort. We, we, we speak not his name, but the, 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 that 45th orange president. Um, it, it's, it's just weird that he, he, was, he also very professionally caricatured someone who famously also fails to take agency and, and not, not only fails, but um, deliberately sidesteps agency at every opportunity. Is that, I don't think that's an irony though. I just think it's, I just think it's a more, more coincidence than irony, right? We need to keep those terms clear. Well, I'm not sure I agree with you there. I do see a certain irony. Oh yeah? In, in Alec Baldwin. I, I really don't want to get political here, but he has been a very strong-willed, hot-headed, self-righteous person in the past and has mercilessly run down those he accuses of not being morally responsible and not setting a good example for the world. And then this horrendous tragedy happens on the set oh, of a film of which he so is executive bad. producer. Yes, terribly sad, unbelievably sad. Mm-hmm. And maybe... Uh, you object to the use of the term irony here, but I do see a certain. Yeah. I, I don't know that I object. I just want to make sure that I'm using, I, I've seen so many people, um, most famously and embarrassingly, Alanis Morissette, uh, isn't that ironic that, 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 that where she, um, misuses the word brutally all throughout the entire song. So I just want to be certain I'm, I'm, I'm not, freighting that word too much. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like trying to be very precise. Well, I could not agree with you more about the precise use of language. Right. And, and that, and Alanis. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because when you don't use language precisely, you are not making distinctions and you are not thinking clearly. Right. It's super important. It's more important than people think. It's far more important than some people think to use language precisely. And all too often, people forget that. And they say, well, anyone I disagree with is a racist. Anyone I disagree with is a fascist. And they forget that those terms have highly specific meanings. Mm-hmm. And they refer to very, very serious things that have very grave consequences in the world. Right. And when you carelessly misuse them, you are not doing anybody a service. And you, we all know the story of the boy who cried wolf. Oh, yes. But some people, some people don't understand that if you call everyone a fascist, then someday when a real fascist comes along and you try to bring attention to it, people won't listen. It's like when people set off fire alarms in a prank, as a prank in a dorm, then when a fire alarm gets activated because there's actually a fire, people ignore it and they just go back to sleep. 
Exactly. And that actually did that actually did happen in in a fire at a university where my father used to teach. He he was the chairman of the math department at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. Mm. And there was a terrible fire there in 1999 and three people died. And oh, no. the fire was originally started as a prank supposedly, but it was not funny at all. And there have been so many false alarms, so many instances where people sounded the alarm as a prank that when there was an actual fire, people didn't pay attention. Yeah. And there's been a lot of the false alarm bell sounding with, with fascist in particular. And yeah, and it just makes it possible for people to then do all kinds of crazy things with language, like blame insurrections on Antifa, and <laughs> just yeah. So I I am I'm, I'm a adamant stickler for precision of language. That's another reason why I enjoy publishing your stories, Michael. I I I enjoy the way you you use language and you wield it very precisely and cleverly and darkly and wittily. All those, all those adverbs. Stephen King would have my head for using so many adverbs. He advises against them. Well, Stephen King does have some things to impart about writing. Did you read his book on writing? <laughs> it's good. It's good. I've, 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 Back when I was um, an English professor, that it came into my classes, bits of it in the form of handouts. I, I don't know that I altogether agree with the blanket elimination of all adverbs. I think it's good to maybe cut them out and see see what happens without them. But some of them, mm -hmm. they can be useful. They have a purpose here and there. I don't think that he objects to adverbs per se. I think that what he takes issue with is lazy writing and people Ugh. falling back on adjectives and adverbs and using them as a crutch and trying to avoid the actual work right. of narrative and description and evoking certain emotions and reactions on the reader's part. And I think it is all too easy for some writers to do that. And uh, a writer can say, well, I walked into the room and I had a, a terrible, immediately stultifying sense of dread. Well, <laughs> that is a very Cliff's Notes description. That is, right. I love that, that. is, that is summarizing rather than evoking reactions. Right. And you don't want to summarize. You don't want to tell the reader what has taken place. You want to situate the reader in that in those circumstances and make the reader feel everything that the character is undergoing. And if you rely excessively on adjectives and adverbs, that's not going to happen. I agree. So you need to err more on the side of, well, I walked into the room and... I had no idea why it was so cold. Maybe someone left a window open and I heard this howling sound coming. And then I heard footsteps and I thought, well, who could possibly be in the building at this hour? I thought I was alone. And then 
allow the reader to extrapolate and allow the unseen to be more terrifying than what is actually presented explicitly to the reader. And you need to situate the reader in a given situation and avoid just summarizing. And so I don't think that Stephen King wants to outlaw the use of adjectives and adverbs. I think he's just urging writers to err on the side of trying to be vivid and evocative. Yeah, I get that. I think you successfully do that in your writing too, Michael. You, you put us right in the scenario. Mm-hmm. We're, we're moving through the action and looking with dread around the corners, <laughs> gleeful dread. Now, I'm wondering, were any of the stories in your book, did they ever previously appear in Meat for Tea? Or did the book come out prior to you submitting to Meat for Tea? There are two stories in When We're Grown Ups that first appeared in Meat for Tea. Yay. I need to get a copy. I need to get my hands on one. I'll ask my local bookseller. Well, I have the information here. The first one is the titular story, When We're Grownups. Yes. And the second one is Who's, Whose Woods These Are, I Think I Know. These are both stories that originally appeared in Meat for Tea. Yay. So when did you publish this collection? In 2019. Nice. That's super exciting. It is exciting. I'm very proud of this book. I think you should be. When we're little, people ask us, we ask each other, what do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) And the answer might be, well, I want to be president. I want to be a movie star. I want to be a head of a bank or a corporation who flies around on his private jet and talks on his on his phone. I want to be a famous director. I want to be someone really important and admired. And sometimes when we get to adulthood, maybe we are proud of who we are and what we've accomplished, but there still might come this moment where we look back on those youthful aspirations And we can't help noticing that uh, there is a gulf between youthful idealism and adult reality. It's not necessarily a bad thing, Mm. but it's, it's something that we might encounter. And what do we make of it and how do we react to it? And how do we reconcile the gulf between youthful or childhood aspirations and adult reality? And this is one of the themes of this collection. Here we have stories about people who had grandiose dreams and they wind up in adult life. And it's not necessarily that their lives are bad, but there are certain, I think, quotidian realities that we have to learn to accept. I love that. And we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. Back to your back to your writing, back to your stories. And um, do you have a piece that would be short enough to read on the podcast? Or should we just continue talking about the the overarching themes? 
that appear in the various stories. I'm happy to do either thing. Well, even my shorter stories tend to run to about 3,000 to 4,000 words. I'm not sure that I have a good candidate right now. That's okay. Sorry to disappoint you. No, I'm not disappointed. I like talking about just the themes that you're exploring in your writing too. And I, I really do love that when we're grown ups as a theme. I love that so much because what we do so often, especially when we're little, I'm going to be a prima ballerina. <laughs> I think that was mine for a while. <laughs> and just that that gap between that expectation and just that, that coming to terms kind of just with, with our human lib- limits. And I think you expose that in a lot of your characters. And you also expose... It seems like you kind of pry apart hubris before a fall and and just let us feel the impact of that fall when it occurs. <laughs> I think you do that gracefully and elegantly. I'm looking forward to seeing what you send for the Russian caravan issue of Meat for Tea. Mm-hmm. Well, can I give you a bit of a preview or do you, do you want to go into it blind? No, I'll, I'll take a preview. I'm I'm psyched for one. <laughs> Well, I don't want to engage in any unfair market practice here and try to influence your decision, but <laughs> this is a story about a comedian Oh, nice! during a time of social tension, a very kind of unstable polity, a very frayed situation, and he agrees to a gig that requires him to travel a little bit. And he has to go down to this city uh, way down on the southeastern coast and do a stand-up routine. And he does that. Uh, but when he gets up onto the stage in this in the lounge of this hotel that's hosting the gig, he says some things and he alludes to some Russian writers who envisioned a certain kind of scenario involving espionage and trade secrets and stolen stolen files. And having said these things, he knows that he is no longer safe. And people will want to know how he got hold of certain information. And so what he thought was just an innocent stand-up routine turns out to be the kind of a written confession to things that he knows, secrets that he's acquired, and associations that he has with people in the intelligence community. And I don't want to give away any more, but things get progressively complicated and dangerous, and uh, it's kind of a crazy story. I don't want to ruin it for you. I'm excited. I'm excited to read that. that. That sounds so cool. Do you want to talk about anything else from your collection I want to draw our attention to any of these other wonderful stories? Well, I think this is a very rich collection in terms of setting and scenario. And the themes revert again and again to this gulf or this disparity between youthful aspiration and adult reality. But having said that, we have stories here that are set in North Carolina and in Florida and in Maryland and in upstate New York and in the deserts of the American Southwest 
and in New York City and on a remote island in the Pacific Ocean. And so there really is a lot of variety here. And I, I do have themes, but I'm not trying to bludgeon the reader to death with them. I'm trying to keep the work very fresh and engaging and interesting. And we mentioned the South Pacific here. There's, there's a short story here. And I think that it's a very topical story. It's called The Swindlers. And it's set on a story in actually the Central Pacific Ocean. And if you've been following current events, you may recognize the setting as the island of Nauru, which has a very interesting and complicated history. And stop me if you know this. But Nauru was an island originally colonized by Australia. It had this Micronesian population going back many, many millennia. Uh, But in the early 20th century, when this great power grab was going on among the nations of Europe, actually, uh, Germany and Australia had a number of conflicting claims. And it was a German colony for a while. And I think Germany was chronically bitter over its inability to have overseas holdings as sizable and significant and remunerative as those of some of the other European powers. And this is one of the factors that led to the rise of Hitler and and everything. But uh, anyhow, that's a a digression. I appreciated that digression. (laughs) Yeah, Germany and Australia and Japan fought over this territory for many, many years. And Nauru was uh, occupied by the Japanese in World War II and terrible atrocities happened. And then it was recaptured by Australia and finally became independent in 1968. And for a while in the late 60s and the 1970s had one of the very highest per capita incomes of any country in the world. I think only Switzerland had a higher per capita income. And the reason that Nauru was so prosperous was that the the island had vast deposits of lime phosphate that accrued from the waste of migrating birds. They would leave their waste on this island and it hardened into phosphate, or you could extract phosphate from the waste. And the phosphate was a key ingredient in fertilizer used by farmers in many countries. So by mining and exporting phosphate, Nauru, for a while, was one of the richest countries in the world. That's fascinating. But it is fascinating. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. But eventually, the supplies of phosphate began to run out. And the entire interior of the island was this mined-out circle. And so you had a fringe of beach and some trees and some settlements. And then you have this mined out interior where all of the deposits have been completely extracted and exported. And all you have is these depleted mines. And it's a very, very sad story because uh, I saw this movie a while ago. What was it? Well, 
it was uh, Charlie Sheen in in the movie Wall Street. And I think at some point someone says that if you have a lot of money and then you lose it, then you feel even worse than if you never had any money at all. And imagine what the people of this island went through. Oh, gosh. When they, they, had, they had been so rich for so long and then they lost everything. And all the phosphate was exported to other countries, and they suddenly were without means of a livelihood. And so what were they going to do? And I definitely see the wisdom of that. And the experience of Nauru bears this out. And so suddenly they were faced with this dilemma. Well, what are we going to do? We have 12,000 people on this island smack in the middle of the South Pacific, in the middle of nowhere and no natural resources and no native industries and no ways to make money. So for a while, Nauru became a haven for shadow banks and money laundering. Mm -hmm. You could very easily and inexpensively register a bank on Nauru with no actual brick and mortar location. The bank was just in a file cabinet somewhere and theoretically it was domiciled on Nauru, but all of the transactions took place electronically on via computers and tremendous amounts of money were laundered through Nauru registered banks and it was it resulted in huge scandals for russia and there were white collar criminal prosecutions in new york that involved huge dollar-denominated transactions take place via Nauru banks. And Nauru wound up on the blacklist of the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, over the prevalence of money laundering through banks registered on Nauru. And so eventually, they curbed shadow banking. But then they were back to square one. And how are we going to make money? Well... Through one of the quirks of international diplomacy, Nauru, this little island with 12,000 people, has a seat at the United Nations in the General Assembly. Mm. It's kind of an interesting thing. Because you have you have towns in Missouri and Iowa and Kansas and Nebraska that have 10,000, 50,000, 20,000, 25,000, 30,000 people, no direct representation anywhere. But you have this little island with 12,000 people that has a seat on the General Assembly at the UN and has a vote in decisions that affect the world. That's so wild. It is wild. But there has been this long-running controversy over whether Nauru would recognize mainland China or recognize Taiwan. And there's been a lot of pressure exerted on Nauru to recognize one or the other. And one of the things that I get into in my story is the kind of ambiguous identity of this little island nation with 12,000 people in the middle of the South Pacific that is under tremendous pressure from vastly more powerful forces and organizations and governments and countries. And what does it do? And how does it find its way in the world? And it's... An example, uh, again, I think, of the kind of universality of this theme mm -hmm. of 
the disparity between dreams and realities because people on this island had so many hopes and aspirations. And for a while in the 1970s, they had one of the highest per capita incomes in the world. And then they lost everything. And where do they end up? And it's very much like a person who makes a fortune and loses it and winds up in middle-aged, broke, divorced, alcoholic, all kinds of problems. (laughs) It's a very, very universal theme that manifests itself in myriad ways. I love that. I'm so intrigued. So I'm sorry to dominate the discussion here, but I wanted to explain to you the universality of this theme and the the many, many different expressions of it and iterations of it that I've tried to capture in this in this book. I need to own this book, Michael. I just this has to be part of my library. I've got to run right out and get it. Encourage all my local booksellers to carry it. Are you on some like local indie bookshelves in your area? I don't believe so. I think that my work, as I said before, is not mainstream enough to be picked up by a lot of booksellers. And I think that it kind of circulates in Sami's dot, if you will. Mm-hmm. We might be able to see what I can do about getting it in a few bookstores around here. I can ask to order a copy and they might order more for the store. We'll see what happens. Worth a shot. So thank you. And that was so fascinating. I'm so intrigued to read that. I think we've pretty much done this. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel like we've, we've covered the ground you want to cover? I think so. I think we covered a lot of ground and your questions are very incisive and thought provoking. And I've enjoyed speaking with you. I don't interview. We're, we're just having a chat. I do. I've enjoyed speaking to you too. I can't wait to see you. I hope you make it out for the Cirque and I'm going to be um, researching good lodgings for you in the meanwhile. I, I, ha- I like to, I only ask um, three questions of guests. The rest is just chat and, We're now at my question point of our conversation. So I am curious to hear what you're reading these days. (laughs) Well, we talked about O. Henry. Mm -hmm. And I have also been reading a lot of Yukayo Mishma. Ooh. And there is a fascinating writer. I could talk your head off about Mishma. Uh, I, I don't want, I don't want to do that, but I just want to say that I think he's a unique writer, and I think that he was a writer who was very, very unconstrained by conventional expectations, and he just wrote from the heart, and he presented the world as he saw it. Spell the last name for for our listeners. Yes, Mishima, M I S H I M A. Mm-hmm. And he is the most famous Japanese author of the 20th century. Nice. And he wrote a lot of wonderful books. He wrote After the Banquet and The Sound of Ways, Waves and The Sailor Who Fell with Grace from the Sea and Death in Midsummer and Other Stories and nice. Running Horses and a lot of other wonderful books that I highly recommend. Cool. I'm going to have to get my hands on that. 
on some of those. I don't know. I, we, we need to um, actually just have a separate house for our vinyl and book collection. It's burgeoning. What are you listening to these days? What's on your turntable if you have one? If not on however you prefer to listen to music. <laughs> well, I'm listening to a lot of kind of mellow and soothing music that helps me to unwind. Nice. And there's this wonderful electronic art rock instrumental band, L1011. And oh. they have a song, a very well-known song that I think they, they've actually sold the rights to for use in commercials, but it's called My Only Swerving. Okay. And it's a, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, very sort of relaxing and pleasing electronica tune. I really like L1011. I find them arty and, and soothing and playful and clever. I really like their music. Fantastic. And I think now is a good time for people to choose self-care and their musical choices. <laughs> I think it makes good sense right now. Mm -hmm. What are you watching? What am I watching? Well, I mentioned the Oliver Stone movie, Wall Street. Yes. And that is, that is a very, very sort of canonical movie that I had never actually seen until just I've recently. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. <laughs> Maybe I need to. You want to know what's funny about that movie? Well, it's directed by Oliver Stone. Mm -hmm. Came out in 1987. And two of the principals in the movie are played by Charlie Sheen and John McGinley. And they were in Oliver Stone's Platoon, which came out the year before. Oh, yeah. And both of these movies... You want to talk about universality of themes and themes that cut across different settings. Well, in both of these movies, you have these two young men and their buddies, and they enter this crazy environment where they don't really know how to get by, and it's every man for himself. And they look for guidance and inspiration to older veterans. And in Platoon, it's Sergeant Elias and Sergeant Barnes, uh, one of whom is good and the other of whom is evil. Mm -hmm. And in Wall Street, it's, uh, yeah, it's Michael Douglas, uh, corporate shark, Gordon Gecko. So it's funny that you have a movie set during the Vietnam War and you have a movie set on Wall Street in a, a sort of different kind of warfare. And you have these green recruits or inductees who look to the veterans for guidance and support. And they find that they can't find moral guidance because the veterans are very corrupted by this, this uh, crazy, dangerous, chaotic world. And it's funny that Oliver Stone uses the same two actors for these settings that are totally different and yet highly similar. So when I watched Wall Street, it made me think of Platoon. And I thought of the thematic continuities between these two movies, which are supposedly about unrecognizably different settings and scenarios. That's so fascinating. I love that. If I can pry myself away from um, Yellow Jackets, <laughs> the Showtime series I've become obsessed with currently, and get back into a movie, Wall Street's going to be on my list. 
Maybe Platoon again, too. It's been a long time. I haven't seen that for ages. Michael, it's been a pleasure. Really, really fun. Thank you so much. This was fun. It was a pleasure. Thank you. See you.
All right. Wow. That was great. Yeah, thanks for uh, having that conversation with Michael, Elizabeth. That was really terrific. It was. It was my pleasure. Mark your calendars, guys. Local guys. We have a Cirque coming up. March 12th. March 12th with Heroes of Tulik, Pineapples, stand-up comedy from Laura Grant, films from Thomas Matthew Campbell. It's going to be a hoot. And the usual spoken word readers as well. It's going to be good. It's It's going to be be really good. And join us back here for season 12, episode 13. 13, lucky number 13, where we're actually joined by members of Heroes of Tulik in conversation. You'll hear from Evans Wolforth and illustrious artist Jennifer Coates. Yeah, it's going to be great. So as always, you know, two weeks from now, we'll be back with another episode of the Meet for Tea cast. Make sure to tell your friends and family about this podcast. Yeah. Word if of mouth like is it, the best way. Spread the word. Spread the word. Don't hog it all to yourself. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much. We'll catch you again in a couple weeks. See you next time. Adios. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea, The Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Stone Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. Visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meatforteacast at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meatforteacast. We welcome suggestions for our contents for the Meat for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meat for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeef, Meat for Tea on Instagram, and on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>